everybody. Welcome to the Modern Connection Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Dean, and tonight, or today, I am joined by Helen Sim. Uh, she's been a friend of mine for the last two years, maybe a little longer. Mm-hmm. Um, we're both super connectors, although she's been doing it from the Bay Area for the most part. Uh, Helen's an executive coach. She's a community builder. Uh, she's an entrepreneur, and she's one of those people where whenever you meet a large group of people and you wonder how they know each other, she's usually the reason. She's at the center of a lot of different social networks, doing all of the work, the unseen work that allows for people to experience connection in their day-to-day lives. And so I'm really excited to have her with me here in New York. And for today's show, because we are two people who are obsessive about like the art and the science and the fun of human connection, um, I want to give you a brief, just like a little a tidbit of like what we're going to go into, what we're going to sink our teeth into today. So we're starting off with a little bit of um, what connection means to us right now and how we got into this field, um, how we got into caring about seeing that people connect and that we connect authentically with other people. Um, We'll move into kind of like why it matters for an individual to want to be connected, why it matters for a community uh, and how to do that, how to connect people in a community, how to connect with any given person that you run into. Um, what are the blocks to human connection? What are the things that stand in our way of actually feeling those like warm, squishy feelings of like, yeah, we're on the same page here. Um, then we'll move into what, when is connection bad for you? What are the things that can make for toxic connections, even though they may feel good at the time? Um, we'll talk a little bit about some of the philosophy, like, do we deserve connection as people? Is that a thing that should be a right? Um, should society, you know, work toward this as like a social aim? Uh, and lastly, we'll, we'll round out with some of the tools and practices we've come across that we found particularly useful for bringing people together and making sure that they leave feeling more connected than they did when they arrived. So without further ado, um, I'm going to welcome in Helen to give just, I want to cover, I guess to start, um, how would you currently describe what connection means to you? Uh, I think connection to me uh, means truly seeing for someone as they are. It means um, exposing uh, kind of my soul and being vulnerable with my highs, my lows, my struggles, uh, my philosophy of life. And for me, connecting with another person means uh, I want to understand who you are and how I go about that is I want to be able to understand who you were before, who you are now, and who you want to become. Ooh, you almost stole my answer. <laughs> um, I like that. I, I've historically told people that for me, connecting requires first that I understand like what motivates you, what's the thing that really gets you going, that lights you up, that makes you kind of mm-hmm. suddenly come alive, maybe for the first time in a long time. Um, and then after that, I want to kind of know where you're going with that. You know, If you're motivated by this, um, how can we stay connected in the future? Where might your attention be living in a week, in a month? Are you planning on switching careers? You know, what are the huge shifts in your life? Um, and knowing that about someone helps me do a better job as a friend of, you know, connecting with them and finding out, you know, how can we be supportive of one another moving forward? Because yes, a connection can happen for a minute or, you know, like a moment at a coffee shop or a couple days on a cruise, but, the lifelong connections, the ones that really become nourishing through time and through crazy life events. Um, 
those are the ones that we oftentimes kind of yearn for Mm -hmm. the ones that help us see ourselves in different lights as the years go by as we change and those are the ones that I oftentimes really try to seek out (laughs) and build across communities and across my friendships and relationships so I really like that we both have we're both (laughs) operating from a similar place here Um, so I know you just spoke at our NYC salon series um, Mm -hmm. last night we had a packed house over 100 people showed up uh, and your talk was on fear, but one of the stories you told us was basically your connection story, what your life looked like very early on. And um, I, I would love to be able to share that with even more people because that story moved the entire room. And I want to, I just want to have the audience here get to know what is your backstory because. I believe once they hear your story, they'll really believe that if you think you're not able to connect with anyone right now, you've heard nothing. (laughs) Your problems will be put into a very good perspective from the moment you hear Helen's story. So Helen, I want you to kick things off. Just like walk us through what your life has looked like over like the major inflection points in your search for connection. Absolutely. Um, And so I prioritize human connection above all else. Um, And that's primarily because I know what it's like to live life with no connection whatsoever. Um, And so I'll I'll tell a little bit about my story. Uh, I, when I was two years old and my brother was born, um, my parents couldn't afford to take care of us anymore. Um, And so we were sent away and we kind of just had to fight for our survival. Um, and the thing is, like, from a young age, literally from the, from the moment I could consciously recognize myself as an individual, I didn't feel wanted. I didn't feel seen or taken care of. And because we were bouncing around homes all the time, the message that I kept being told was that, you can't tell anybody that this is your experience. Um, And so from a young age, um, I needed to be useful. I needed to deliver value. And I started working at sweatshops um, uh, around like five or six years old just to earn my keep. Um, And for me, uh, and if nobody could take care of us, um, if we didn't have uh, some place to sleep, uh, we would sleep on the factory floors. But the thing that stands out to me and defined my life for more than a decade was um, adults around me kept telling me, you cannot tell anybody what you are doing. You cannot tell anybody that you are working. You cannot tell anybody um, the amount of neglect that you're going through, because if you do, your parents will be sent to jail and you'll be separated from your brother. The police will come, um, barge into your house, uh, rip you away from the brother who was like my sole focus in life. I needed to raise him. Uh, we would be ripped apart and we would be sent to abusive foster homes. And how old are you when you're hearing this? Uh, I'm, I'm hearing this. Uh, the earliest memory is probably about five or six. And I kept hearing this over and over and over again. And because... I I was fairly silent. I was I literally spent months and years not talking to people. And so the only moment that adults talked to me were to lecture me and to silence me into submission. Um, and so I started gradually seeing adults and kids and any human beings as threats. I saw 
any person who made eye contact with me as someone who might be the person to rip my family apart, to literally tear my world asunder. And so my existence felt like I was paralyzed in fear every single day for years. Um, I lived in social isolation. Um, I, I mentioned uh, at Salon that uh, I was chronically ill and it was from chronic loneliness. Um, I felt like physical, like almost like excruciating pain um, because I was never held. Um, I wasn't acknowledged and I kind of felt like a ghost moving about the world and I just didn't understand why this was my life and when I observed other people around me I didn't understand how they could smile I didn't understand the the huge discrepancy between my experience as a human being and others people's experience as they went about the world and was there a moment when you suddenly like, when is your first time when you felt a sense of, like, I'm connecting with a person? And it did it happen suddenly? Was this a progression that led you to that moment? Yeah. Um, so the first moment uh, I remember uh, that was kind of a, an inflection point. I, I won't say that it was necessarily connection with another human being, but it was an aha moment. Um, and so because I was silent and avoided all people, it gave me a lot of time to read. Uh, and so I read probably, on average, about eight hours a day, every single day, for at least a decade. Um, so I've just absorbed other people's life experiences through words. Um, and up until that point, I was a really unhappy child. I was really miserable. Um, you, I think nobody would really recognize me. Um, and it's because my internal monologue was, people kind of suck. Um, why is, I was blaming the world and I was blaming other people. Like, everybody would pass by me and I would just think, please, someone just look at me. Like, please, someone just talk to me. Like, I was so desperate for human connection and I just didn't know what to do. Um, and I kept relying on other people to save me. I like I was the the person who would just kind of pray before I even knew what prayer was um, that someone would save me. And when I was about eight years old, um, I read this quote um, that's I think commonly attributed to Gandhi, um, and it was "Be the change you wish to see in the world." Um, and it just it kind of hit me like a truck of, oh God, I've been waiting for other people to save me. And I'd read enough fiction up until that point when I was eight years old to know that other people in these stories, other people on TV, like they, they seem happy. They seem to be laughing. They seem to be uh, hugging each other and um, smiling at each other. And that's, life that I desperately wanted and I stopped waiting for other people to do that for me when I was eight years old I was determined like I want to be that person I want to be that person who walks into a room and makes everyone to feel welcome because that's what I prayed for as a child um, and then my and I spent kind of from the ages of eight to eight, 15 
training myself to be able to talk to people because at age eight, I, I, I spent so long in silence that I didn't, I literally didn't know how to translate the thoughts in my brain into words um, to speak out. Um, and so I started slowly by uh, saying, okay, Helen, if you like just look at one person today, um, you don't have to make eye contact. Just like look at uh, like look at a person's like arm instead of their shoes. Um, and then I think six months later, I would uh, like try to look at someone's like nose. Um, and then like it took me a couple of years to be able to even like say hello to someone. And I would just kind of like run up to someone and be like hi. Um, and then kind of run away and it was really awkward. Um, and then I, something that we've chatted about is because I spent so long in silence, uh, I observed human behavior almost like an alien studying, uh, humans. Uh, I was able to observe every little tick. Uh, I was able to observe, um, what was different? What were folks who were able to connect doing differently? And when I was 15, uh, the moment I was actually able to connect with someone, um, I went into a, a church and someone, um, someone approached me and it was the first time in my life, like literally first time in my life, I was 15 years old, that someone came up to me, looked me in the eye and said, hi, my name is Bobby. What's your name? It was the first time in my life that someone just stopped and looked at me. And I remember feeling this like giddy, warm sensation flow through my chest. And I remember like I like my internal like sensation was like, this is the most wonderful feeling in the world. Oh, my God. And I just said, oh, my God. Hi, I'm Helen. And it was the highlight of of like that month and several months to come someone acknowledging me um and it was the first moment i realized like just saying hi is so powerful just reaching out going out of his way to forge that connection with me was so powerful that i felt so loved that a couple of weeks later um, when I saw another boy who was probably about 12 or 13, um, standing against a wall, I kept going, oh my God, please someone say hi to him. I know what it's like to be that boy. I know what it's like to feel so left out and excluded. Um, and I finally like mustered up the courage after a lot of internal debate of like, do it, don't do it, do it, don't do it. Um, that I finally shuffled over to him awkwardly and said like, Hi. My name is Helen. What's your name? <laughs> and I saw like that sigh of relief mm -hmm. and that smile spread across his face. And he just said, hi, I'm John. It's nice to meet you. And that was my the first moment in my life where I realized like, it doesn't matter how terrifying it is for me or paralyzing, if I can help another person feel as loved as that other person did for me, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. Like, 
because it, it might be even more terrifying for the other person and that kind of just catalyzed cha- like transforming into who I am today I, I love that story and I love that like the person you are now compared to how you describe like what life was like growing up it's such a like people now know you as like the most warm and like cuddly <laughs> kind-hearted effervescent person because you just light up a room every time you walk in and even before you're in the room people are already excited that you're coming because they know they'll get to experience those feelings when they're around you it's quite amazing um but i also it resonates a lot with me because i feel like there, there's a kind of like a, an undocumented lore among super connectors that they all have this kind of like tragic origin story <laughs> where they were they're used to having no connection growing up and then they had to build it on their own piece by piece and that process taught them the value of connection and the value of generating it first generating that warmth and peace and care that you can then give to others rather than expecting it from them first and i feel like my story is kind of similar in a way like there was a time growing up when like I, I came from luckily a family that was very loving and caring but also very large so I always felt invisible and I was taught early up early on growing up that being invisible was the best way to be like don't take up space uh, always look down don't look people in the eye don't call don't call attention to yourself be um, you know just as as downplayed as possible never get a big head um, and so that was my upbringing, but that kind of resulted by age 13, 14 in me having zero friends and no one that I could turn to for connection. I would go on the internet and just like type words to people, but it wasn't really connection. It was more just, you know, casual chatting, a little bit of MySpace blogging, you know, but never those feelings of warmth, never those feelings of like this person and I are on the same page and... It was around when I was maybe 15 that I came across a a really sketchy blog, like one of those <laughs> GeoCities websites, oh, and man. there was a single line on it, and it basically was from, I think, some sort of like Buddhist doctrine, and it was talking about, I think it's called uh, Dharma or Dhamma, mm-hmm. uh, the art of living, and the line simply said, like, when you can generate your own peace your own tranquility, your own feelings of serenity and contentment and self-love, and let that emanate outward from you and fill yourself so that your cup is overflowing, you can then begin giving that to others. So once you've already loved yourself and you know how to produce that feeling, you know how to tap into that part of you that is so tender and loving and like you genuinely care for yourself, you can then offer that to someone else. You can offer them that moment of like kind-hearted, attentive care you can share that. Like you get to produce this beautiful thing in excess anytime you want. And you can simply give it to others as a free gift that then allows them to fill their cup and to learn how to do it themselves and to then spread that further. So it's like this love virus, this <laughs> beautiful... And for me, like when I was growing up, I had never tried that. In a similar vein, I thought that I was supposed to look away, never make eye contact, never take up more of someone's attention than was warranted. Like if I'm standing behind them in the store, I'd hope they'd never turn around and look at me. I hated the idea of being the center of anyone's attention, even a single person's. And so when I first started... I was starting from scratch. And so I had to first, I laid on the floor alone for about 12 hours a day, just reflecting on like ways in which I could better understand myself, care about myself, um, 
I did a lot of the loving kindness meditation, the meta meditation. Mm. Um, and I also did my own version of like a scientific inquiry into how are the happy people around me, the loving people around me, what, like, what are they doing? So I was studying things like, are they making more eye contact than the average person? Are they smiling more? Are they doing kind things? Um, if an opportunity comes up to take like a bold stand in standing up for someone, do they do it? Um, and I kept finding that there are certain characteristics that the people who seem to be most connected and most loving, most caring, most happy would consistently exhibit. And so I made my own plan, my roadmap. I was like, okay, you know, Monday to Friday or Monday to Sunday, I'm going to like pick the characteristic I want to work on. So the first one was eye contact. I have to make eye contact with one person today, go out of my way to make eye contact. And my secondary rule the next day was I have to hold the on, I, I couldn't be the first one to break it. It had to be a genuinely loving and caring eye contact, ideally not creepy. I practiced in the <laughs> mirror to make sure it didn't look too creepy. Um, to the point where I was able over you know months to begin making, like, even just making eye contact gives you access to someone's inner world ever so slightly, especially, especially if it's reciprocal eye contact and especially if, you know, that can lead to like a smile. That was like the leveled up version of that. Once you're sharing a smile, then you're, you have this moment. If you've ever done eye gazing, like you almost, it's almost impossible not to smile when you've made eye contact with someone for more than like four seconds, you know, not on the street where like they might be totally creeped out or on the subway. <laughs> like in, in the modern age, we almost fear connection because it oftentimes comes from people we don't want it from. Mm -hmm. And it's not like everyone is walking around desperately hoping for the genuine connection from a stranger. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to that later because that's its own complicated mess. Mm -hmm. But at least the building blocks are oftentimes, as it seems, the same. It's sharing this moment of genuine, attentive care with someone else. And it oftentimes is expressed through eye contact, through a smile, through warm words. Um, and so, yeah, I think I really like that that's our starting point for this. Just the, the fact that we were both brought up in a context in which connection was not easy. And those moments of genuine connection were few and far between. Um, so I think I want to move on from here into what does it look like to connect with a single person? Like, what does that actually mean? Because if you ask anyone walking the streets of New York, if you ask them, how often does someone come up to you in the street and say hi, they will say, way too often because those people usually want something they might want money they might want me to like give them their my cell phone so they can use it and they might run off with it there's all of these walls people put up because oftentimes the attention they get is not that kind-hearted genuine i just want to connect with another person it's oftentimes hi hottie <laughs> followed by like the cat call so it's actually really difficult for a lot of people because they've been essentially immunized against the forms of connection we are just talking about, mm -hmm. where it's this very like gentle, caring, loving, I have no intentions other than to share this moment with you. There's oftentimes a lot of strings attached to modern connection. Mm -hmm. So from an individual standpoint, um, how, how should we better explain what connection realistically looks like? Yeah. And so I... I think about it from the way I used to think about it as a child um, when I didn't understand connection um, and the way I understand it now. 
And so before, when I would try to kind of, in this desperate attempt to make friends, um, I was trying to impress people and I just wanted people to like me. Um, and so in, in, in turn, I, I did want something from people. I wanted their affirmation. Um, and so as a teenager, I, I was a people pleaser. I did anything that you really wanted um, because I wanted you to like me and because your validation and affirmation uh, validated my existence as a human being um, because I didn't know how to fill up that cup by myself. Um, and so I was seeking something from people in connection. And the difference is now um, is that I am not looking for anything. When I approach a stranger or a friend um, or uh, like literally just a pedestrian on the street, um, my single purpose or a single intention, even if it's just for a couple of seconds, is I think about can I make you sm like? Can I help you smile? Um, can I help make your day a little bit better? Um, if we're you know if we're just passing each other by, um, can I like say thank you with just like a warm grin um, or just a sense of presence so that you feel like you have a little skip in your day? Um, and so this, um, I notice that uh, especially with waiters or bartenders or folks that I feel like don't necessarily get the, the the love and attention that they really deserve because they're on their feet all day. They work really, really hard. Um, I specifically go out of my way and ask, hi, what's your name? Thank you so much um, for your work. Thank you so much for your service. Um, and it really does brighten their entire day. Um, and with a friend, I'm not seeking validation. Like, I have filled my own cup. I work on myself so that when I see someone, just like what you talked about, I want to be able to radiate warmth. I want to be able to radiate presence and kindness because I think we get so little of that in our day-to-day -day that if there is anything I can do to help you, in any sort of interaction that we have, I'm, I'm going to try my best to do that um, while taking care of myself at the same time. I resonate with that. I, I guess in my case, what I, I don't know how often I try to connect with people who I don't know on the street, or at least I'm not as verbal in my forms of connection. I'm mm -hmm. very nonverbal. Mm -hmm. um, words of affirmation are certainly something that I struggle with from time to time. Um, my kinds of connection that I generally opt for are almost like the, the kinds of moments where it starts with eye contact, um, whether it be walking down the street. I almost feel like if I can get someone to share five seconds of eye contact walking down the streets of New York, that's crazy. Like five whole, usually you'll get like one tenth of a second and then they look away awkwardly um, and they hope you won't make, like the longer the eye contact, the more likely if this person has nefarious intentions, they're going to like approach you and ask you for something. So a lot of New Yorkers are trained, do not make eye contact. And so I tend to enjoy that process of just making eye contact with everyone, being prepared if it, if it misfires, um, but being 
making my entire focus to just explore their life. Like, can I get a quick sense of like how this person's doing based on how they react to eye contact? Are they going to look up and be cheerful and be like, oh, wow, like this is, wow, someone is making like this kind and loving eye contact with me. How nice. Like that brought my day a little bit of pep. Other people, you can see like a wariness. Uh, other people, you can see almost like a deadness where they don't even, like they're so in their own world that they don't, they see right through you. Um, so just getting those, and even certain neighborhoods, like you'll see that the eye contact changes. Um depending on the neighborhood where you'll, some people in, in some neighborhoods, you will have like maybe 1% of people reciprocate the eye contact and none of them will smile. Other neighborhoods, it'll be like 30, 40% of people as you walk by, you know, they'll look up, they'll lock eyes and sometimes they'll maintain it because they also see a little bit of joy in those little micro moments of connection. Um, and I guess in a more interpersonal level with friends and with people that I actually desire to you know, maintain a longer term connection with. The types of connection that I really opt for um, are ones where we can freely discuss um, what we expect from the connection. I think that's an important thing because it can be really devastating to connect super deeply with someone if their intention is for that to never continue again. You know, like when you're traveling, it's easy to connect with people because oftentimes you know that you're going to be boats passing in the shore or whatever that phrase is. Ships like, passing in the night. There you go. Like, <laughs> like you see them for that moment. You connect as deeply and fully as you want and then you're gone from each other's lives. Whereas, and we'll get to this later, like what does it mean to connect with someone genuinely when it's not the kind of person that you ultimately want in your life? Um, we'll, we'll touch on that in a minute, but I think that's... It, it's really hard for me to justify if you know how to connect with someone to just do that willy nilly. So I almost reserve the connection for the people who've already voiced a desire to connect or they I'll host an event around connection so that the people who know that that's what the kind of experience they want, they can negotiate it up front and say like, I just want to do this for tonight. I, or I'm looking for something like some serious forms of connection in my life. And when I do, um, experience those moments, I actually want to explore that further and create an entire language of connection with that person. Yeah, I, um, I really love that you brought that up because um, I think defining what you want out of connection is so important and it's completely necessary. Uh, when I think about folks, uh, and we talk about tribe a lot and who we want to surround ourselves with, uh, for me, that definition has changed as I've changed. Um, once upon a time, I loved surrounding myself with folks who were super ambitious and wanted to create things, and not, like entrepreneurs and uh, folks who were uber like rational and loved excel spreadsheets and like reading uh, and kind of waxing like philosophical um, and now for me i want to surround myself who uh, surround myself with folks who make me feel like the best version of myself and that i bring out the best version of the person I'm friends with. Um, I want to surround myself with folks who are givers, who uh, also delight in connection, who um, 
when they come to connection, don't kind of come with their cup half full and say like, you must give me this, you must fill my cup, rather than, um, rather it's, I'm so happy to see you, Helen, let's, uh, let's kind of delight in each other's company and raise each other up. Um, and check in with each other about that. Yes. That's an important step to connection is like, is this a good time mm -hmm. to have this moment or are you going to be distracted? Mm -hmm. Do you remember when like iPhones first came out and smartphones in general, the percentage of the time the person you used to be talking face to face with, with eye contact suddenly was looking at their phone instead of at you. And then you're like the Bluetooth phenomenon of those like annoying headsets where someone's talking on the street and you think they're talking to you or they're behind you in line, they start talking and you turn around, make eye contact, and they're literally making eye contact with you but not talking to you because they're they're talking into the Bluetooth headset. So these moments of like connect, feigned connection when it's not actually happening or um, where you would really want to connect with someone but because of like their divided attention, you end up with this like false promise of connection. So it's definitely a a frustrating experience trying to know when and how to connect. Um, and I think you, you were talking about like the tribe you're surrounding yourself with. Mm -hmm. um, that was the next thing I wanted to go into for the podcast is simply how do you think about connection from a community builder standpoint as someone like we, we both have run versions of one salon, which is a biweekly or weekly speaker series where we bring in people to talk about unique stories that only they can tell. Um, and you've been running the one in San Francisco for what, about four years. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're bringing people together every week for the sake of getting them to connect with one another, connect with their community, connect with the speaker. Um, how do you approach, whether it be like designing spaces for getting mm -hmm. people to connect, designing flows of people who are, you know, talking amongst one another? Um, what's your you know, not your theoretical framework mm -hmm. per se, but just how, how do you approach you? You have a group of people in a room. You want to have them come away feeling more connected than when they arrived. How do you think through that? Um, every, uh, nothing is by accident. Every moment of that experience is designed specifically so to help you connect. Um, and so what I've learned as a community builder and it's uh, what I've learned as an individual is that people are desperate for a connection. And so for Salon, I intentionally design a space where I give people permission and, uh, and the organizers and I give people permission so that they can let their guard down. Because when you put up this facade that you have to do for your in, for school or for work, um, you're trying to seem significant. You're trying to kind of uh, show to the world that you have it all together. And while that's gr that might be great for you know your career, um, it's the antithesis of what leads to great connection because vulnerability is what leads to connection, and gradually exposed vulnerability is actually what leads to connection. And so from the moment you walk into salon we have facilitated questions and we specifically tell people um this is a space uh, where there's no small talk you're not allowed to talk about your careers whether where you live in san francisco and we intentionally design it so you break out of the standard social script because we're so used to kind of ask like saying words and asking questions that we don't like we don't care about the answer like genuinely like I 
don't actually care um, where you live in San Francisco. I don't nor uh, normally uh, care about what you do for a career at first. I want to know who you are and what you struggle with. And so the intention, uh, the questions in the first 30 minutes are designed to break you out of that mold and push you out of your comfort zone. And then we play improv games because it kind of sh gets you out of that I need to be an adult mindset and we're just all going to get weird. And because everyone is being weird and, you know, stretching their faces and running around like chickens, um, you have this shared sense of, I'll say, suffering, but also experience. Um, and it bonds you. And then the it's Salon is a place where you learn new things where you can meet new people but most importantly have authentic conversations and so the entire evening is structured so that you gradually like kind of every 20 minutes like get pushed out of your comfort zone but in a safe space and and you've kind of mentioned the behind the scenes work we spend a lot of time making sure that it's a safe space um, by the way that the organizers talk to people and instill like a very strong culture um, so that I think in the Bay Area, um, Salon's reputation is that it has really great people and it's very warm and cuddly and fuzzy um, because I think people want that and want that to be the norm. And it's kind of this space um, and haven like that once a week um, you can't be silly, learn new things. And then by the end of the night, we've kind of broken these barriers um, that after the speaker um, kind of steps off on stage, people stay for hours. So we start at seven and there are days when I stay until like 1 a.m., 3 a.m. and everyone is just like talking on a Tuesday night, like thrilled to be there connecting. I can say from having run the New York salon that all of those things are 100% accurate. And we've had similar experience. Uh, granted, improv games are really hard to get people in New York to do. <laughs> New Yorkers are a very stuffy bunch <laughs> compared to people in the Bay Area. So getting them to move in a weird way or be weird ever is an, ex it's an extreme struggle. So the fact that you got 100 plus people in a room yesterday to do like weird facial expressions and <laughs> meditation. I think that was remarkable because that does not happen in New York most of the time. Um, but yeah, when I, I have a mini version of Salon that I host on my own called Thrive, and that's mm -hmm. something where we can have 100 people stay for, well, I'll start at 6 p.m. We'll stay there till 4 a.m. with only the questions because a lot of times people spend so little time in their lives talking about things that genuinely matter to them. Like, yes, there's like the annoying logistical things. Can I pay rent? Do I hate my job? Um, you know, does the winter suck in New York? Sure. But like the things that genuinely matter are the things that gen they make you question who you are and why you choose to be who you are and who you'd like to be in the future. Um, whether you value the friendships you've built, whether they're serving you, like questions that hit at something much deeper that like my, my rule of every question asked at my Thrive Salon is that it needs to be a question that anyone can answer no matter what, because it draws from personal experience. 
and one that everyone has familiarity with because of the nature of it being so like inextricably bound with what it means to be a person, to be a member of society, to be someone who cares about getting to know other people. Ooh, I'm curious about what's uh, what's one of your favorite questions to ask? So this is actually our next topic was Ooh. how to connect with anyone. <laughs> and I think having a little arsenal of some of these questions can be really helpful. I know you asked me just last night um, after Salon, you had said, what's something that's been occupying my curiosity lately? And I think that's a really fun one because... If you ask someone, what have you been doing lately? They might just say work and it sucks. And now they're sad. And you've made them talk about something that makes them sad. If you ask them what's been occupying your curiosity, then that could spark like a a conversation about their passion project or why they want to leave work to go do something more creative. And suddenly you might be, you know, the person to do that with them or the person whose friend also wants to do that. And so you connect them and now they have a partner in crime for their passion project. Um, Questions that unlock the hidden side of people's lives. Um, one that I asked yesterday was, what is your self-talk like? Uh, so like, what's that little voice inside? If you were, you know, like those shows where there's a narrator going through as you're watching the person live out their life, what's your narrator? Like if your life became a movie, what's the voice of the narrator? Is it kind? Is it whimsical? Is it consistently brooding and always saying that whatever you do is the wrong thing? Um, I think that's really important for people to be able to assess, you know, and getting to know that about someone else can give you the opportunity to share your own version in such a way that they may see, oh, wow, I never realized I could have a different internal narrator. And so you can open up entire pathways where someone's, their world gets blown apart in a good way, (laughs) (laughs) Um, simply by connecting with them at a level where it hits something more deeply meaningful to them. Um, Are there any other... I guess, ways that you would recommend for, you know, let's say you're someone who doesn't currently have many deep connections. What would you start doing to change that? Yeah, um, I think number, number one is kind of shifting this perspective from I think a lot of people, um, myself included, once upon a time, uh, had extreme social anxiety of um, if I approach someone, I need to be entertaining, I need to seem impressive, I need to be cool um, so that I am worthy of their attention. Um, And the thing is, from an interaction, most people just want to be seen and heard. And so if you have a couple of questions up your sleeve, um, and I think we'll, we'll share them at, during this conversation, you can connect with anyone. And one thing I do want to point out is so much of communication is nonverbal. And so it's in the calm and warmth that you generate. People can tell when you're genuinely interested in them versus I'm just going to awkwardly ask you a, a barrage of questions so that I, you know, so because I want you to like me. And a, a genuine smile, uh, like presence, warmth, a good listening ear goes a long way in connecting with anyone um, and having good intentions because we are biologically wired to be able to suss that out in a moment's notice. So people can tell it's fairly obvious when you're listening versus not. Um, but one of my uh, one of my favorite questions, um, if you don't know how, uh, if you're trying to start connecting with uh, folks, is asking, um, "Hi, like my name is Helen," and you know, 
you might ask one or two questions in the beginning, like, uh, you know, what brought you here? Or like, what brought you here to Salon? Um, is this your first time? Just kind of establishing quick context um, as human beings, because we do need like, uh, like one to two little snippets of small talk. And then I'll go, I'm really curious, like, what have you been thinking about lately? And if someone's, and if the other person um, is potentially uncomfortable with that question, I'll explain why I'm asking. And human beings just need an explanation for why you're asking. So, you know, I'm not going to blackmail you for this information. <laughs> um, so I'll normally say, like, you know what? I used to ask people, like, um, you know, what do you do or things like that. But then I realized... Um, that I want to get to know you and I'm much more curious about um, what you've been thinking about rather than what you've been doing um, and sometimes I'll answer the question first to put the other person at ease um, so the way to establish connection with anyone instead of seeming like an interrogator of asking a lot of questions I'll kind of be the model of vulnerability because if I want our conversation to be vulnerable then I have to be the one to go first instead of expecting you to to do that. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you're setting the tone of what you are willing to see this conversation look like. And so if you say simply, what have you been thinking about? There could be a wrong answer to that in theory that someone might not be aware of. Like they don't know where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. So when you give that answer, you're basically setting the tone for how much depth are you willing to go into first mm -hmm. so that they can feel comfortable matching it if they so choose, if that's where they actually want to steer the conversation. Or if they don't want to go that deep, then it's also you know their prerogative. Mm -hmm. But it, it gives them at least the model for how deep you're willing to go. And it's certainly the case that um, some people have reasons to be more guarded. And to just always be hyper vulnerable is not necessarily a good strategy for connection because it, it does have to be a reciprocal thing. Mm -hmm. You can't just be like, Hey, my mom died yesterday. How's your day? Because <laughs> like, <laughs> then no one really knows how to respond to that. Mm -hmm. Like it has to be a conscientious opening up gradually in such a way that you can kind of like, if, if you pick up on someone's, they look really off or they seem sad. You can comment on that. You can say like, you seem like you're carrying a lot of weight right now or like you have a sadness about you. Uh, is everything okay? And have you been going anything, going through anything that's been rough lately? Um, that's, that's a completely reasonable thing to ask someone, even though you've just recently met them. It's just letting them clear the air, maybe giving them just a moment to vent. Uh, that can be really cathartic for people, especially if they don't feel comfortable venting amongst their friends Maybe they've already done that, and it could help to have the ear of a kind stranger. I think of, um, kind of like you said, uh, immense vulnerability right from the get-go is really jarring. Um, and I see conversation and connection as kind of this gradually escalating game of like ping-pong or tennis, where you have to kind of lightly like lob the ball across the court, make sure that the other person like is returning the serve, um, and then you can kind of escalate in kind of the strength of the kind of the conversational topics. Um, but kind of being completely vulnerable, go, oh my God, my life sucks. This is so hard. From the get-go is kind of like me taking a tennis ball and just like throwing it like first strength and it's just going to hit you in the chest and you're going to, and then you're going to be attacked and go, oh God, I was just hit with this. I didn't ask for this. 
um, and it's putting the burden on the other person versus um, versus kind of it's kind of like conversational consent like are you okay with talking about this um, yes okay let's kind of gradually slowly escalate this and I think an important part of even recognizing where someone is because they may not verbally tell you that they may show it in their body language so I think one of the things you mentioned yesterday during your talk is the importance of like studying up, learning a lot of these things ahead of time so that you can be prepared for when you're like in the real world dealing with it. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of my favorite things that I learned early on, like certainly later than I would have preferred, this is like maybe 16, um, was eye contact and how important that is for getting a quick sense of like, is someone following the conversation? Are they looking elsewhere? Um, the best way I found for I guess understanding my own approach to eye contact is recording yourself talking to someone because you'll be amazed. I just looked at the recording of me from yesterday. I was horrified to note that I addressed an audience of over a hundred people and I looked up maybe twice. So I'm learning a lot about like, can you, can you read a room using audio only? It's really difficult. I'm, bl I'm sure blind people have learned how to do this, but like if you have the capacity to make eye contact, that gives you so many windows of insight into whether people are following, whether they're distracted, whether they're actively engaged and like their smiles reflect both in their, their face and their eyes. Um, I think it's such an important treasure trove of social information that if you're trying to connect with someone and you're not making eye contact, it can be really difficult to know whether you're actually doing it. You know, like the conversational rapport can have a really nice back and forth flow. And then in that case, you have a pretty strong predictive model. You think, yes, like this seems to be going somewhere awesome. You've been talking to me for an hour. But I've definitely known instances where, and this is our next topic, stumbling blocks to connection. Like I've known plenty of instances where someone will talk at you and not stop. And then you feel socially awkward because they're not making eye contact with you. So they don't notice all of your body language cues signaling like, I'm no longer comfortable with this. And you're just giving them kind of the you know, the milk toast responses of like, uh, yeah, yeah. Like if they're not picking up on the body language, the facial cues, um, maybe even the changes in your inflections, then there's a huge problem there. And it is really a struggle when you're with people who don't know how to do the basic building blocks of connection and they just kind of steamroll it. They think they're connecting. They'll walk away from that conversation being like, oh, I talked with Helen for over an hour. It was great. And Helen walks away saying, oh my God, I am so exhausted. This person talked at me for an hour. So I think being able to match energy with someone, recognize whether they're signaling something with their body, with their voice, with their words, um, being able to be in sync with that requires that you don't just you know, ask questions or ask vulnerable questions or go first, but actively do the work of picking up on, like, is this person still engaged uh, are they still making eye contact? Have I been speaking for a long time and didn't give them any opportunity to share their perspective? Have I even asked them after an hour of talking whether they need to use the bathroom? Like basic things where you check in with someone's actual needs. And I think it's not always intuitive. And so it, th these are skills that you learn over time when you're whether connecting with lots of people or engaging in deeper connection with individuals. Um, I also want, I want to take a quick break for stretching because in light of me saying, Hey, part of connection <laughs> is that you recognize when someone you're with may have needs and you're not just completely subservient to following that conversational <laughs> flow. Um, we're going to take a short break and come right back. Sounds great. I'm glad you vocalized that. Yeah. 
This is now going. And we're back. So I'm here with Helen Sim. We're talking about all of the nuances around modern connection, how we connect, why we connect, when we shouldn't connect, um, what are the natural stumbling blocks to connection. So for the next, the remainder of the segment, really, we're going we're gonna to tackle um, what are the actual blocks to human connection? When should we be choosing not to connect? You know, like setting up boundaries and talking a little bit more about like what is the role of connection in modern society? Um, should we be optimizing for it? Uh, do people deserve it implicitly? Things like that. Some juicy topics maybe up for some debate. We'll see if we can find points on which we disagree. I think those <laughs> Ooh, will be the fun ones. Two like strong connectors. What are the things we actually disagree on? Mm. Um, so you, you had said that you wanted to touch on something around the blocks to connection. Yeah. Um, I actually think uh, the primary block to human connection is yourself. Um, in particular, not knowing thyself. Um, I think when seeking something outside of yourself, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a professional relationship or a romantic relationship, if you don't know what you want and who you are, then you're going to spend your entire life or some subset of time kind of desperately searching for something that you're missing and you don't know what that is. And the thing is, um, most people... Um, that I see kind of struggling for a connection, um, they're missing that connection to themselves. Um, and, you know, we, we talk a lot about self-love and loving yourself. And the thing is, most people don't actually tell you what that looks like. Um, a lot of people will say, you know, in passing, like, you know, look into the mirror and go like, you're awesome, Helen, like, you got this, girl. But the thing is, that is not actually self-love. That is not understanding yourself. Understanding yourself looks like knowing your strengths, um, but it also looks like knowing your weaknesses. Um, it's knowing um, it's knowing all the different facets of yourself, what you want, what you don't want, um, uh, knowing that there are sometimes when you're going to be mean, there are sometimes you're going to be kind, there are sometimes you're going to be selfish, there's kind times where you're going to be selfless. You are not good 100% of the time. You are not competent 100% of the time. Sometimes you will suck. Sometimes I will suck. And the thing is, self-love comes from knowing that and accepting all of that about yourself. Um, and so if, if you can love all of those parts of yourself, then you can love all of those parts of other people. If you feel if you constantly feel like you're not ambitious enough, that is the lens that you're going to judge other people through. If you feel like um, you're not doing enough for the world or um, you don't have enough status, not making enough money, not kind enough, that is essentially, whether consciously or unconsciously, you're going to judge other people through. So if you want to connect to other people, you absolutely have to connect to yourself because the number one block that I see is if I don't love myself, I'm desperately seeking other people to validate my existence. And that from the get-go um, belies a very unhealthy one-directional relationship. That was insanely deep. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 
it's one of those things you take a pause, you're like, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Have I been loving myself (laughs) adequately or at all? I'm sorry for you listeners who are now (laughs) potentially reeling over that mic drop moment. (laughs) Um, Wow. I, I want, I, I'm in agreement. <laughs> no surprise there. Um, I think it can be really hard to know how and when to love oneself because it's not easy. And we oftentimes do things that reveal to us that we do suck. And it's really hard to stomach that. One of the things that's been helping me, I like to think about, you know, like I am not a fixed entity. I'm always changing. If I look at myself 10 years ago, 10 years from now, I look at predictions I made of myself like my 10 year from now self circa like five years ago and think about where am I on that progression. Like I am a being that is in flux. And I also like to think we're living in a simulation, you know? (laughs) So if this is the one simulation opportunity I get, who do I want to be? Who's my Steve Dean character in this simulation? And do I love that person? Is it someone who I would root for? Uh, Am I making the decisions that I like that I would want if, if this were to be replayed to me? Like, is this, if I had to watch my stupid simulation forever on repeat, could I tolerate and stomach the decisions that I'm making? And are they done for the right reasons? Um, so part of my process of self-love is kind of thinking through who's the version of myself that I would actually enjoy seeing come into existence. And maybe I'm not fully there yet. And there's a lot of parts of my personality, like fears I'm working through and struggles and like skills that I just haven't learned yet. Maybe I don't even know that I need to learn in order to be that kind of person. But at the end of the day, you know, all I can work with is what information I have now and what information I can gain sooner. And so as time goes on, I I no longer feel resentful toward my past selves. I don't feel resentful toward who I am right now. I simply feel excitement over the fact that every moment I learn a little bit more about who I am. I learn about who I would like, I can decide for myself who I'd like to become. And then I turn to every person I will ever connect with in the world as my allies in helping bring about the best version of me. And in doing that, I think the the way that I then connect with other people, because you can't just say, hey, come help me be the best me. Because they're going to be like, well, I don't care about you. Why why should I care? Mm -hmm. This brings me back to what does connection look like in the first place? So like, yeah, I can understand myself. But what does it then mean to begin turning that toward others? And for me, what I found to be most effective is to, like, in the absence of other people, what does your mental model look like? You know, you're born into a world where your brain has no idea what's going on all around you. So you look at other people, you learn from other people, you may learn horrible things from other people about, like, conditioned behaviors around how to seek and expand upon connection. But one of the things that you don't have as a guarantee in life is that you have positive role models, positive mental models around connection. And so when we both, it seems, studied what other people were doing, we began to learn, oh, like that person's smiling more. They're doing something that not everyone does. When you start doing that, you then essentially build a habit around smiling that then becomes a gateway toward connection because you start to not just like, yes, that person was smiling, But what you didn't realize when you weren't smiling is that that person had to make the intentional choice to do that. And so when you begin practicing these little habits around connection, you suddenly start to unlock entire segments of the world that were invisible to you before. You never knew that there could be a world where people would smile back. 
until you start smiling. You never realized that people would make eye, eye contact with you and want to connect with you until you started wanting to connect with them and actually doing the work of holding space for them, creating those spaces where you can connect. So I get excited simply that so much of what seems impossible or that seems like things we don't even think about become within our grasp as soon as we start just practicing some of the things we see other people do that we like. Exactly. You know, pick the pick all of the models around you that you would like to make into this pastiche of a person. Like, put them all together. You're like a Mr. Potato Head or Miss Potato Head. <laughs> like, that gets to be you at any point in the future as soon as you start taking the steps needed to actually become that person. Surround yourself with people who help reinforce those habits. Mm -hmm. um, go to events that help uh, build on those skills. Um, I just think it's so nice that we have the ability everyone does to be able to just change our behavior bit by bit toward becoming the people we want. But I think we, we veered off the topic of why we shouldn't connect. <laughs> so I want to... Well, uh, I wanted to um, just kind of quickly follow up with that um, yeah. in terms of uh, perspectives. You talked about um, the sense of agency. As mm -hmm. soon as you start taking agency over your connection, that's when everything shifts. Um, you know, we've talked about uh, being super connectors and, you know, neither of us were that for most of our lives. Um, and I've noticed that the folks who are happiest are at the center of social networks, and that is not by accident. Um, we talked about, you know, the invisible things we do behind the scenes to actually get people together. It is actually quite a bit of work, um, but we have built it into our lives and our personality so that it's it's become a part of who we are. Um, but things that I notice that are very different about um, how I approach interactions nowadays is I initiate a lot of conversations and I initiate a lot of follow-up mm -hmm. and I initiate hosting a lot of events. Um, uh, so for example, uh, a lot of folks ask me, I, uh, I travel a lot um, and folks have noticed like, you're very good at making friends right away. How do you do it? And it's because as soon as I meet someone and I think they're really super, really awesome, I immediately message them and tell them, hey, I thought you were really awesome. Would you like to grab a cup of coffee next week? Um, and the thing is, people might say no, and that's okay. They have their own priorities, and I have my own. And it's not, I don't see it as, uh, for example, a rejection. And I think that's what makes me braver or more courageous about, yeah, maybe I'll ask 10 people out for coffee, and maybe only one responds, maybe five respond, and that's okay. Um, and then I'll keep following up. Maybe I'll invite them to cool events that I'm going to. I try to deliver value, social value, um, to anyone that I meet so that we can kind of gradually build up our connection over time. And whenever I go to a new place or meet old friends, I will say, um, I'm going to Thailand, uh, tomorrow and uh, my first course of action is I'm gonna host a dinner for whoever wants to have dinner um, and I'll just randomly post on a Facebook group of like hey I'm new to town uh, I'd love to meet folks who are really interested in having deep meaningful conversation who's interested turns out a bunch of strangers are um, I like how you brought us into this topic of like you like to create value for people because in doing that, and in, like when you send all these messages to people, initiating conversations or hangouts, inviting them to things, 
for some people, that can be totally overwhelming. For others, it's exactly what they needed. Mm -hmm. And I think you learn through potentially trial and error, maybe there are some skills here as well, mm -hmm. how to know when and how to reach out to people, how to respond. Because when we're talking about like when is connection bad for you, if you only engage in these like habits and activities around connection and end up surrounding yourself with people who are craving connection but are actively draining you because they're so far behind or they have so much they don't know how to recognize the limits of one person so like they're like oh my god i'm connecting with you you're the first person i've connected with can we do this forever can we just keep connecting it can be so draining and ultimately really toxic if you're not able to spread that connectivity around and not make it always solely exist within one person. Just because you locked eyes at a coffee shop, smiled, passed the, the milk, and said like a really quick affirmation to that person, and you both smiled, you got each other's phone number, does not now mean that you must always and everywhere connect, and that this person didn't have a life for years prior to your existence in which they didn't know of you. Like Just because you connected doesn't mean you have to keep connecting, doesn't mean you have to escalate the connection, and doesn't mean you have to do it solely on your terms or solely on their terms. So I think anytime you talk about establishing connection, you have to talk about establishing boundaries because connection without boundaries can be devastating. This is when you see toxic codependent relationships or single-sided dependent relationships where one party is doing everything to ensure that the other party can't connect with anyone else because they only can connect with me because you know, it, it's really scary when people become fixated in the types of connection or the pathways to connection. So I think it's worth maybe talking about what you would consider good recommendations for establishing strong boundaries. Yeah, um, this is especially salient because uh, about half a year ago, um, that is exactly what happened. Um, uh, for context, uh, I went to Bali for six months and it was I did not have strong boundaries when I felt like I was, um, and I often uh, am told uh, in conversation, Helen, you are the first person I've ever had this kind of conversation or connection with. And um, for me, I'm so grateful to be able to have that connection. And at the same time, um, it becomes overwhelming when I physically, emotionally, and mentally cannot handle that amount of social demands. Um, and at the time, I felt like I am probably the most awful, terrible person because I know what it's like to crave and yearn connection to the point where it's physically painful. Like, and my self-talk at that time was like, Helen, who the hell are you to reject someone? Who the hell are you to put up boundaries when you know how painful it is to be on that other side? And so I stretched myself so thin that I became physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausted to the point where within the span of a month, I said, I need to, I, I don't know why, but I need to leave and I need to be by myself for months. Um, and I literally moved halfway around the world to give myself some space. Um, and at that time, I didn't know why. I just knew I needed space. And after a couple of months, actually by myself, you know, in Bali, so it's not too shabby, I realized I had been ignoring my boundaries for years, for my entire life, because I didn't think that I was allowed 
to have boundaries or have wants. And two, I realized that if my identity, if I had a bunch, um, if my identity was like this beautiful house and my fears and my desires and my motivations were kind of all of these different Helen parts, like there's a, there's, you know, like a, that's still scared little girl. Then there's, you know, the effervescent bubbly social Helen. And then there's like loner Helen who's used to reading all day, every day. And then there's, I like to think of like wise Dumbledore Helen who gives sage <laughs> advice and speaks in metaphors. Um, all of those selves felt like they were in anguish because there was a part of me always leaving the house, serving other people. The mom of the house was serving other people and not taking care of the family, the like the Helen identity and family. And when push came to shove, I realized I needed to take care of myself. And it was it was this giant wake up call where I started loving myself and taking care of myself before taking care of other people. And now what I know viscerally and experientially is I matter too. And so in interactions, now I don't feel that plaguing sense of dread and guilt when I say, hey, you are so wonderful, but I want to be able to focus on taking care of myself. And so I need a little alone time or you are like, you're so great. And I really enjoyed this conversation, but my priority for the next couple of months or right now is I actually really want to devote more time into, uh, into solidifying the existing friendships I do have. Um, and I think before I used to make a lot of excuses, um, of why I needed time to myself. And now I can be perfectly honest and just state what I want because it is not a rejection upon the other person or it is not a judgment. This is what I need. And as I said before, like now I want to be focused on my tribe where we are both delivering value to each other, where we are lifting each other up and where I don't feel like someone's uh, therapist or where I don't feel like I'm kind of that mentor, always that mentor figure, because that is what I'm used to. And now it's not what I want anymore. And that's okay. People's needs change and people's priorities change. Yes. <laughs> so much, yes. I think any talk of connection is never complete without a talk of the specific boundaries. And even I like how you've detailed how you tell people, like enough is enough or I need to you know this is what I need to do right now mm -hmm. you know I love this conversation I love where it's going I need to pee like those kinds <laughs> of things you know like yes. recognizing and being able to comfortably voice where you are where you are what your boundaries are um where you'd like things to go like setting the scene for the future like hey can we follow up in a week I really want to explore this further uh but right now I have to go live my life. Mm -hmm. I have to go take care of other parts of my house that are on fire right now. <laughs> like This was great. This moment on the subway, I got to get off. This is my stop. It's, mm -hmm. it's as easy as that. Like this was great, but this is my stop now. Um, let's, let's go into, because I, I want to wrap this up. Mm -hmm. um, we're in like basically the final part. Do people deserve connection and what's the role of, uh, whether society, social capital, in creating connection more broadly? Like, do we believe that having more people experiencing connection 
is a good, I mean, I'd hope we do to a certain extent, but this is my, this might be where we may have some differences of opinion in terms of, you know, how do we expand this ability to connect? You know, I imagine it was part of our species for hundreds of thousands or millions of years, and suddenly that in the digital age, disconnection is everywhere and missed connections are everywhere. So basically, one, we can do the philosophical point of, do we deserve it? Mm. Is there anything about connection that humans innately deserve? And then secondly, what should we be doing as a society to make this better? I have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, (laughs) But uh, the number one thing is, there's a fantastic study about what leads to um, people feeling satisfied with their lives um, and what leads to longevity um, and satisfaction in lives. a lot of uh, and um, on the chart, you know, there's uh, you know, like exercising every day. Um, there's you know your career. There's like getting the flu shot of uh, like what leads to longevity, and by far um, number one and number two that leads to a meaningful uh, long life is um, social integration and social bondedness above way far above everything else and so to me and i'm sure to you it's mind-boggling because we know that this is what we need to thrive as human beings um but it's largely ignored and the and so you mentioned do we deserve connection um I'm not a huge fan of the word deserve but human beings need connection like we are biologically wired like as a society and as human beings we need connection we need touch we need um, to feel seen and acknowledged by other people and we know that um, loneliness um, chronic loneliness is like an epidemic sweeping the like the globe generally and it's going to lead to a lot of chronic illness um, and a lot of societal problems so for me when I think about connection is the the reason why we lose connection is because society does not validate um, kind of progress in connection. What society validates is progress in your career because you get a gold star every time you get that a you get a gold star every time you put in extra hours for that work project you get a bump in salary um you maybe get that promotion and so especially for folks who are ambitious hardworking, doing the right thing your entire life you have been externally validated for the progress you put into your resume Um, David Brooks has a fantastic article about resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. Um, Clay Christensen, who's a Harvard Business School professor, also has a a great article, um, great book about how will you measure your life. And the thing is, the things that actually matter in life, like your relationship with your family, your romantic partner and partners, um, your your friendships, those social connections you are not often externally validated for it. Your, you know, your father or mother or your daughter or brother is not, are like, are not going to say, thank, like, thank you so much for taking, uh, like, time out of your day to talk to me. Like, you get a gold star. Um, your wife, husband, uh, romantic partner, 
um, might not say like thank you so much for cooking me that meal like you have leveled up and like you are now like level 17 of like romance ninja and your friends are not going to you know say like you know you get an extra like five dollars or like an extra like five friendship value points um, for doing this and because we are so used to that dopamine hit every time we put effort towards something um, we are going to constantly be seeking that react reactive dopamine hit. Um, and so if I know that if I can invest 10 hours in this and get like that external validation, why wouldn't you do that versus something that might take 50 years and then on my deathbed I look back and go, oh crap, I should have been working towards this if like this kind of intangible feeling of feeling like I'm a good mother, father, lover, friend, but this is what I've, this is what I needed and I didn't have the markers along the way. And so I think that's what's missing in society, kind of that uh, cohesive framework to reward ourselves for being relationship builders. Have you ever seen anything in society that does reward people for that? Ooh. So if, if society's missing it, is there a way of getting it back? I think number one is a number one is awareness, and then two, um, one of the things uh, that I think you and I like to create um, in our tribes um, and in our friend groups uh, is that validation. Um, one of the things that I did for. Um, my birthday and I like hosting a lot of like weekend getaways is um, I asked all of my friends like how do you like to be loved how would you like to be loved this weekend um, and I had everyone kind of write down their love languages and how they wanted to be loved some people like to be loved by like being squeezed like tight from behind and feeling like, enveloped in warmth um i love to be uh cared for by just let's sit down and have a deep meaningful one-on-one -on -one about what we're struggling with that makes me feel so loved um and i know and you know what the reason why i asked it in the first place was i wanted that but i didn't know how to ask for it so i offered it to everybody else instead and we had kind of this colorful map on the wall of what all of my friends wanted and we gave it to each other that weekend we affirmed each other and we told each other how grateful we were and the thing is that's not something that's quote-unquote normal in friendship circles or society um, but I think if you want that, you can create that. You can create that norm. You like If there's something that you need emotionally, mentally, um, chances are other people around you need it too. And so for me, I'm not afraid to take the agency and say, this is what I want. How do you... How do y'all feel about it? And chances are, um, most of the time, there's a resounding, oh God, hells yes, I want that too. Because we're all looking for that. We want that validation. We want that gratitude um, from our friends. And something um, that I've noticed is I never want someone to doubt or wonder how I feel about them. And so I'll often say, like, for example, like, Steve, I think you are doing the most important work in helping connect people. And I tell you uh, that's like, you are 
wonderful and amazing and it's because I see you serve so selflessly and you give so much to other people um, and it's something that if there is a positive thought in my head about you or about anybody else you should no, I want you to know. And that creates a really positive feedback loop in kind of in my first degree network and then second degree network because that spreads. I feel like as much as I love that and support that, I'm not disagreeing. I'm thinking for someone who doesn't have a group of supportive individuals mm -hmm. who are like, oh, let's just show how we can love each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think yes. the average person has what, like, fewer than one, mm -hmm. one or fewer close personal friends, yeah. I think, in American society today. That's right. So that person can't just be like, hey, let's talk about ways we want to feel loved. Their mm -hmm. friend will be like, what the hell did you smoke? Exactly. So yeah. I feel like it's, it's almost like society has kind of deadened us to even... The idea, A, that we deserve love or connection, and B, to any comfort zone or spaces where we can feel comfortable asking for it or suggesting it. You know, like we have the privilege of being in these like intentionally built large scale communities of people who like different forms of connection and bonding. Whereas the average person, you know, maybe the nearest person is a couple miles down the mm -hmm. road. So, like, when you're alone, how do you? get to a point of feeling connection. I lived online for years because that was the only place where I could find people I could connect with. Mm -hmm. um, are there ways of showing love and connection maybe digitally? Are there ways, like, and, and I don't even know if we can tackle, like, what society can do writ large other than, you know, I've seen maybe, like, triple bottom line companies trying to value people over profits, things like that. But that's still not the same as... You know, how, how do we make it a norm in society for people to be able to talk openly about the kind of care they'd like to be receiving? Because um, oftentimes they'll be left out of a room for that because asking for care is a, it's a big and scary thing for a lot of people. And they don't even know who to ask. They don't know how to find the people who would be interested in sharing that kind of love, that kind of connection. Um, this is most of my consulting work is people coming <laughs> to me saying, where do I find these people? How do I make that make space for that in my life? Uh, and it, it's not easy. And I don't know that there is an answer right now. Um, we both have friends in movements that are designed, like the authentic relating community, mm -hmm. trying to help people develop like games and tools for community facilitators to help people do that. But for the average person, uh, have you found any like good tools for connecting maybe online or digitally? Or like if you are alone in a new space, how do you get from the point of I don't know anyone here to I found someone who I can actually ask for connection on the terms that make sense for both of us yeah um and i'd say the important thing is like do what you love um instead of bending over backwards to fit someone else's model um i think uh, one thing that i often see is like i i want friends so i have identified that person and that person and that person um and so i will become whatever they need the thing is develop your own passions, your interests, like what you want to know yourself. Um, and I will be the number one advocate of always getting a therapist because I think everybody in the world needs a therapist in order to know, like to help you in a safe space, know thyself. Because once you understand kind of your weaknesses, the baggage, the stories and your fears that you're carrying and bringing into a connection, 
you will know what you want and don't want a little bit more in connection and that will direct you to where you need to go so for example if uh if you know that you can be like socially anxious but you love dancing or maybe you love gaming or maybe you love um uh, i'm thinking of uh if you're like me like you love improv uh, but you're seeking connection at loud bars there's a disconnect because you're seeking friends um that may not have your same values and interests whereas if you look for folks who like the same things that you do in like nodes of connection the more nodes of connection that you might have with someone the more you'll probably be aligned in like being friends so for example um i know that my nodes of connection what i connect with um, um with people are if i know that you meditate regularly and do improv and uh love dancing and love authentic relating like just those four four nodes alone i have a huge big feeling that will really get it like get along and so maybe we can chat for coffee and then i will start to initiate that that chat um if i'm alone in a new city and there's no one for miles um I will propose the thing. I won't rely on people in my suburb um, to create the thing that I want. Because most people are typically looking around for, I want this thing, but I don't have it. Um, and so I might find wherever people's attention are lying. For example, if I'm in a quiet suburb, um, if it's online, if it's um, you know just walking down the street, I might just find where's your attention lying? And then can I bring enough people together who are interested in the thing that I'm interested in? And we have that shared interest. Um, and then create that. It sounds like you've already started this process for your Thailand trip tomorrow, <laughs> where you posted somewhere saying, hey, I want to do this specific thing. And basically, until you posted that, there may have been dozens of other people who wanted the same thing mm -hmm. and had no idea that it was possible to get it you were the first mover. You simply said, I'm, you're creating gravity. You're saying, this is the thing, I'm going to make it happen and invite other people to join in and invite other stakeholders who may also want to make a regular thing of this. You know, that's how Salon got started in New York. We had one person who said, hey, I want to get a bunch of like relatively nerdy, open-minded people together to talk about topics that are meaningful. And sure enough, a bunch of other people said, oh, wow, I, I've wanted to do this for years. I can't believe you started it. Thank you. Can I join? Can I also organize with you? Or can I bring 10 of my friends who have been yelling at me every day that they can't find this? They can't find this kind of community. Um, it's amazing what happens when you make that first move and at least speak it out into the world or maybe make a quick event, uh, link it out somewhere. Um, there's plenty of opportunities, whether it be like meetup.com, if you want to start a meetup around something, it could be on Reddit. It could be um, making a creative post and submitting it to like a local newspaper about like, mm -hmm. this is the thing that I'm doing. Get a feature on yourself and what you're working on. Maybe you want to do like hand knitted crafts on like a Sunday morning and you want to make that a, a regular thing. Then you simply, you know, get one or two people going and then have someone write about it to gather more attention for people who may have never even heard that this was an opportunity. Um, it does start oftentimes with, just you pursuing the thing that you care about so passionately that other people, they almost for the first time can see it in the light that you're providing. I once had a friend in college who 
it was like a really rainy day and he was smiling so happily and everyone else was kind of like slogging around miserable and he's like i love rain because i get to hear it he's a very he's like an audiophile so when he gets to hear the pitter patter of rain across every leaf across the grass um on like metal surfaces he can basically navigate through the world just listening to the the song of rain and so him having such fervent joy from that allowed me forevermore every time it rains i think of him and so when you see someone's joy at like just being alive being able to experience things when you really take that in it's it can be extremely moving and impactful and if you have a thing that you that brings you joy then do that thing and invite others to share in the same joy it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, um, and it goes something like, don't do what the world needs, do what makes you feel alive, because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. Mm-hmm. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Helen, <laughs> for this, like, what, hour and a half now? <laughs> We're dangerous together. We will talk for many more hours than this. Um Helen Sim, if you ever want to get in touch with her, where do we find you? Where, if someone wants to reach out for whether for executive coaching, for uh, starting a new venture, who knows, hanging out in Thailand? Yeah, um, you can feel free to reach me at uh, htsim at post.harvard.edu. Um, if you're finding this podcast, um, I'll include my information in the bio. In the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, well, thank you very much. And I look forward to all of the connections that I will get to hear about. You leave a trail of connections in your wake and happy, smiling people. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much, Steve.